0: My name is Dina Travis, and I'm the Curator of Queer Thinking for Mardi Gras 2016. So I really thank you for joining this important discussion. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We're absolutely thrilled to be having this discussion as part of queer thinking and I am very pleased that this panel is being presented today by Acon. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with ACOM's work, I encourage you to look at what they are doing. They're doing incredible work in the LGBTQI space. And whether it's services or research or advocacy, it's pretty far-reaching and it does have an impact on a lot of people. So it's just a great fit to have them as part of this. Before I pass on to our moderator, a bit of very quick housekeeping. This panel will run for an hour and then afterwards at 5.30 we encourage you to come and join us in the foyer, the bar will be open and we can continue those conversations afterwards. I will now hand over, very pleased that ACON's Kai Noonan will be moderating today. Uh, Kai is coordinator of the Family and Domestic Violence Project at ACON, so I'll hand over. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Dino, and thank you for the acknowledgement of the Country and for introducing me. Um, I hate public speaking, so I might have forgotten my name or something really embarrassing, so I appreciate that. I um, Just want everyone to know that this fancy-looking microphone is actually because we're being recorded. We're going to turn this into a podcast. Um, I just think that's really important to say. Just If anybody wants to share anything like that, just know that it will be recorded. Um, of course, you can come to us later. And we'll give you the contact details at the end if there's anything that you want left out of there. Um, again, I'd like to thank you all for talking about a really important issue tonight. I personally believe that this is the, one of the biggest issues affecting the LGBTIQ community today, as well as um, mainstream, for want of a better word, society as well, non-LGBTIQ people who are undoubtedly affected by domestic violence, um, domestic family violence as well. In saying that, some things may be brought up tonight that may upset some people here. You may feel triggered. You may have memories, you may feel a lot of emotions, particularly if you saw the play before, you're going to see the play after. You may be concerned about somebody that you know or love or care for. Um, and for that reason, we've actually invited along two of ACON's counsellors, Sarah and Mistos, today. So they're down the front here, and I've actually, they've very kindly given up their Saturday afternoon to hang back after today's discussion. I've asked them to hang around here very inconspicuously. If you'd like to have a chat to them about anything, they're here for you. Um, if it's about yourself or somebody else, it doesn't even have to be anybody in the LGBTQ community. There is some information brochures at the bar, I'll be hanging around the bar for many reasons I'm sure, but one of them being I'll explain those information, I can give them to you you can call today, you can call Monday um, take them home with you, give them to a friend they are there for you tonight. <laughs> That's my cousin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <me the> cousin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll just leave that for podcast um, <laughs> on tonight's panel um, and I am going to get this out because I don't want to forget the important. Um, at the end there we have Moo. Moo is the CEO of a small team of domestic violence New South Wales. That's the peak body for domestic and family violence specialist support services. She's definitely passionate about improving policy and practice responses to LGBTIQ people and families impacted by violence. Moo says that she looks forward to a day when all kids are taught about the intersections between violence, bullying, homophobia, and healthy relationships. She believes that LGBTIQ community conversations, such as today's panel, are key to raising awareness about abuse in our relationships and finding ways to create healthier, queer, intimate partnerships. Thanks, Moo. Just going to keep. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, Brad? You're so moved. Um, was working in ACON's Lesbian and Gay Interviolence project back in the 2000s when it first started. Um, and they first started doing work on domestic violence in the LGBTI communities. He worked on many of the early campaigns. However, he's here today to talk about his personal experience and abusive relationship uh, with a man that lasted over five years. So he's very brave. So thanks a lot for coming along. Sergeant Kate Baker, she stands out. I don't need to point out who she is. <coughs> joined the New South Wales Police Force in May 2000 and has worked at Eastern Suburbs, Surrey Hills and Kings Cross local area commands. One of the primary reasons Kate joined the New South Wales Police was to become a gay lesbian liaison officer. As a proud member of the Sydney LGBTIQ community, she believed it was important to improve and strengthen the relationship between the community and the New South Wales Police. And the best way to do that was to work with both communities. Cedric to my left, is a solicitor at the Inner City Legal Centre's Safe Relationships Project. He's a human rights and anti-discrimination lawyer, and previously worked on a litigation lawyer, law on Aboriginal landmarks and nature title. That, I like, that. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. It's my writing. It's his handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also teaches at ACU and works at Sofa. Good to know. Thanks, Andrew. Um, and Alana to the left. Um, oh, Bring the program I oh. letter to somebody. <laughs> Um, Alana Valentine was actually the writer of the play *Ladies Day*, which was shown just before the matinee is before now, and the
2: show is after. Do you want to do me a favour and say when you introduce yourself? <laughs> if you if you buy the programme, you'll see uh, this, *Ladies Day* is my first play, at Britain, so that's the main thing to say. Uh, a lot of the work I do is in um, what's often called verbatim theatre, so it's uh, it's interview based. That's another thing you might know about my ongoing work
1: and I will just plug your other show it just started oh, yes. last night in the Campbelltown Arts Centre <coughs> uh, you co-wrote and co-directed it and it's called One Million Beats yeah
2: with an Aboriginal poet called Romaine Morton some of you may know and so if I have to leave early it's because I've got to dash out to Campbelltown to mm-hmm. another show which we're not talking about because says it's on tonight <laughs> <laughs> but you can probably fit both in properly. yeah that's right so thank you very much
1: to our panel um, Because you have to go, Alana, I might just start with you. Yep. Um, I do have some questions prepared. Panel, feel free to jump in any time that you like, um, and then I'll save plenty of time for the audience to jump in as well with any questions. Um, First of all,
2: what I want to know is what compelled you to write Ladies Day? Can I start with a piece of audience participation? How many people have actually seen the play? Great. So I'm not going to ask how many are planning to see it, because I'm (laughs) assuming all the rest of you are. Uh, So that's interesting that most people haven't seen it. Um, So the play, what made me write the play was I went to Broome and I spoke to quite a lot of members of the, particularly the gay community over there, obviously the wider GLBTI community, but mostly gay men. And uh, I have spent quite a bit of time in the territory, in uh, uh, not just Broome, but in Darwin. I had a play in Alice Springs and I played in Catherine and uh, through my career, I have noticed that the way people deal with what happens to them depends on who they are so it was when I was writing a play called Parramatta Girls, which is about women who are incarcerated in a, a Parramatta Girls um, a, sort of, was a, a place for what are called uncontrollable women, it was shut down in 1974, but it was for um, women who, young women who had broken the law in some way, including being in a Uh, an alcoholic uh, parent experience where the child was charged and put into these these homes. So um, I met a lot of girls there, and one woman had said to me that she had been bullied by the other girls, and it was so bad that she uh, left Australia and never came back. And it was really interesting um, talking to other women who had some sort of other violent abuse at at the home and um, they said, oh, but compared to other people, Alana, it's nothing. You don't want to speak to me. And I started to understand that an aspect of human nature is that we diminish our stories according to who we are as people. So it's not about what has happened to you, but about who you are and how you think about it. So really, the answer to your question, Kai, is I wanted to write the play because I wanted to look at the ways in which some of some of us think that what is banal or insignificant um, for us may actually be uh, very serious and worthy of, of thinking about and talking about. So the play is, is about that. It's about the way we deal with different, um, different aspects of, of violence and abuse, but, but diminish it uh, according to what we think is dramatic or interesting. Um, so, yeah, so that's the reason I wrote the so, I believe that the information that you got for
1: writing the script actually came from interviewing part of the LGBTQ community in Broome. Yeah. Is domestic violence something that, or violence in general, something that the community there is talking about, or is this something that you found really hidden and buried? Uh,
2: no. Um, I mean, obviously, I, especially in a small town like Broome, I'm kind of not really prepared to um, disclose where the main stories about domestic violence came from because what starts to happen is people in regional towns then play a guessing game, you know, whose story is this, who might have told her this. I mean, my contract with the audience um, in Ladies' Day is that all of the stories are actually based on real things that people have told me, um, but I've spent my, you know, all my adult life in the, the community and so you know over those years I have heard those stories. I did also particularly hear a fair few stories in the territory when I was there. But like I say I just I don't I don't really want to say exactly where sincerely I, I, these stories have been told to me. I'm not making them up. Um, I just want to open
1: something
2: to the panel. So we're, we
1: are talking about domestic family violence in LGBTI communities. Is this something completely new? Do you guys think like that? It's new. Okay. It's new. or new. That it's been new. That's being talked about. Oh, it's definitely.
3: It's it's definitely new. It's it's coming up more. People are becoming um, more likely to report. Not enough. But it's, it's certainly coming to the fore more than it used to. Be. No one wants to say.
4: There
5: was a yeah, I was
4: going to say maybe it's a good time for Brad to talk about where some of this work came from because he was there right at the beginning. Yeah, there was a number of um, uh, so I'll go back before when I got, when I started. The women's movement has talked about it since the seventies, probably. Um, uh, but it, I suppose it never kind of picked up the steam to get out of the kind of the small communities or groups we were talking about. Um, in 1994, there was a big conference um, started by the the Legal Centre, possibly. But like, you anyway, know, somebody like that. They did a big conference, and they kind of hoped that that would get it going onto the agenda. It didn't, didn't quite get up there. And then in about two thousand and two, yeah, mm-hmm. about two thousand and two, um, I was working at the Lesbian Against Violence Project at ACON and I would had the job for about three weeks or something. Um, and we got a call from Darlinghurst Community Health Centre saying we'd like we want a meeting on. Same sex domestic violence. Is it was called then. Um, uh Can Can Acon send something along? And we went along, and there was about sixty organisations represented, and they and it had all come together because the Darlinghurst Community Adult Centre had had I might not exactly have the right number, but maybe about twenty men who'd come through, all experiencing domestic violence, and they didn't know what to do. They had no concept of what to do, um, and so it all kind of started coming together about then, um, and. You know, we had absolutely no resources. There nobody whose job had this in their title, and the whole the, the interagency a, it was called the same-sex domestic violence interagency then. It's now along the LGBTI <laughs> and family violence yep.
5: interagency New South Wales.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so they basically got together, and we just started trying to do stuff. And like literally, it included photocopying articles and sticking into a manual and posting it to people um, who work in services. And we were so happy that the printer had actually printed it wrong. So they printed it single-sided we'd asked for double-sided. So we got them to reprint it for us. <coughs> so we had d- twice the number of copies. <laughs> um, and that was the very first thing we did as kind of wrong okay. All right.
1: Um, Maybe you can give a little bit of background at the moment. How prevalent is domestic violence or domestic violence and LGBTQ relationships? Look, the,
5: um, there's not a huge amount of... Uh, really solid research that's been done in Australia, certainly the piece that's kind of quoted more than anything else's private lives which was done in 2006 that was a study of 5,500 LGBTI Australians and they asked um, it was really a health survey Um, and they asked a number of questions um, about experiences of violence and specifically a couple of questions about domestic violence or intimate partner violence Um, and they found roughly I think it was about 28, 29% of gay men Uh, 37% of um, lesbians identified that they've been in an abusive relationship. Um, For trans and intersex people, significantly higher. The numbers of trans and intersex people who actually participated in that study were fairly small. Um, But if you look at international evidence, it's fairly similar. So we're thinking probably one in three-ish, possibly more. Um, And that's not talking about experiences of family violence or um, anything outside the intimate partner context. Um, certainly, uh, we would like to see some more research done um, around um, whether LGBTIQ people are experiencing that one in three in, in LGBTIQ relationships, or whether it's in a, in a heterosexual cisgender relationship context. But um, I don't know. I think we get a bit hung up on numbers. Um, particularly, you know, I work in um, I work in the broader kind of mainstream field of domestic and family violence. and have these complicated, convoluted arguments about, you know, how many, what percentage of, um, of victims are female are male, and male, and I think we sort of lose the context and the point which is that we need to have services for everybody. Um, certainly some of the research that the has done um, in the last couple of years has really looked at where people seek help, um, and that's about, you know, providing really good mainstream responses, which can be really, really good, and that can be, you know, police, it can be mainstream domestic violence services, it can be you know, going to your GP and having a conversation with your doctor, all of those sorts of places. But also we know that LGBTIQ people need specialist support as well because there are extra things that mainstream services don't necessarily understand. So it's, it's really about having a range of different places, like really soft and hard entry points.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you really, you touched on there about access to services and I suppose, I guess, maybe what I read from that is that the services for the for our communities are perhaps not there when I mean there's not enough services for heterosexual cisgender women as well but it's even less for our services Cedric, just generally do you think there are actually differences between, or differences or similarities between LGBTQ people experiencing domestic violence as opposed to non-LGBTQ people experiencing domestic violence Are there
6: special needs that actually include differences? Yeah, I think think as an LGBTIQ community, we do need specialist support services. But the nature of domestic violence is probably the same across the board. Um, In terms of the Safe Relationships Project, one of the recurring themes is men feel a terrible sense of shame about being assisted through the issues around violence in their relationships, um, as do women often. But there are women's domestic violence court advocacy services in most courts, um, and we deliver training to them as well. So they provide support to uh, lesbian clients and transgender clients, which is good. Um, we've got, made some improvements there, um, but I think the specialist support services, such as Acon, are invaluable for our community in terms of being able to discuss intimate um, intimate issues around those relationships if that makes sense. So yeah, we are extremely necessary, I think, don't you, Clark? <laughs> well, I need a job on my business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but issues around violence are the same I think generally throughout the community, but the particular dynamics around gay, and lesbian, transgender and intersex relationships means that we need councillors like Sarah and Emma's us to be able to disclose those issues candidly and without shame um, a lot of people are a bit confronted by my <coughs> approach to say we have a specialist support service for the community and usually the first response from men is I don't need anything from you right now and I don't need to talk about this and almost all of those men will contact me subsequently so it is critical and the cultural shift in police is turning this.
3: Yeah, yeah it's making a, I think it's making a huge difference to us as well. Um, you know, the education that we um, roll out amongst our officers um, statewide has been has improved significantly in fifteen years that I've been in the, um, the recognition of the differences that exist within GLBTIQ relationships when it comes to how domestic violence manifests itself. I think it's really important that we learn and continue to learn to address those differences and to identify them. To actually be able to speak to people and ask the right questions in order to gently enable them and allow them to disclose what they need to disclose. So we can know. Mm-hmm. Um, like anything, I think, in a, I think in any industry, if you're uncomfortable with what the, a situation, you're not comfortable asking the right questions to get the information. And the whole idea of educating our officers and continuing to educate them is to make them more comfortable, asking the questions more comfortable with different lifestyles, for want of a better word, um, so that they don't feel uncomfortable about asking the questions in the first place. Say, uh, not the same topic we talk when we talk about dealing with um, trans people in custody. Uh, a lot of mistakes were made in the past by the police when people came into custody because they just weren't comfortable and didn't know the right questions to ask. And that's dealing with trans people in any way. Same with DV. It was a difficult and uncomfortable thing to have to investigate. It makes people feel bad. And for us to be able to help people as effectively as we can, we need to consistently look at how we're approaching it. And stuff like that in the ICLC and ACON in order to make our response
1: better. I think that that's how we continue to improve our service. Because I just I want everyone to know that on the LGBTRQ Domestic Violence interagency, there is Domestic Violence, New South Wales, Central Civic Legal Centre, ACON, the police are all there. We do work closely with police to build their mm-hmm. strong relationships. But there was a report that was brought out at the end of last year, um, and in that report it, it said that about only about 14% of LGBTIQ people actually reported the domestic violence to the police. I wish I had the statistics here, it's in comparison to roughly about 60% of... Yeah, I mean I know. think,
5: again, it's one of those things where we get a bit hung up on statistics. Um, it depends on who you talk to. Like, mm-hmm. if you talk to someone like one uh, eight hundred Respect or DV line, and you are, ask them, um, you know, what percentage of your clients are actually reporting to police, they they will probably some say somewhere between you know twenty and fifty percent. And I think that stuff has shifted really significantly over the last ten years, particularly because New South Wales police and other um, police jurisdictions have really shifted. Like ten years ago, a heterosexual woman would you know have a real problem with calling the police and. I guess having a sense of safety and knowing that she was going to be relieved. And that's not to say the police get it right all the time, because they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've got a hell of a lot better. Like Things have really, really improved. And that's been because uh, I think police have worked really hard on it. Other agencies have worked really hard to build strong relationships with police and say, you actually need to take this seriously. Mm. I mean, New South Wales Police, I think it takes, um, I think it's about 60% of New South Wales Police resources so yes, yeah, so you would want that kind of you know focus and training, and I think we've brought in some incredible things in the last couple of years, like um, to do the DV evidence in chief, whereby um, police now go to a job and they will film on a camera um, the the, um, the victim survivor's um, evidence, and that will be shown in court, and that will actually be shown to the um, to the offender before he goes to court. He usually. Um, but and I don't know how it's going with the LGBTIQ space, but I think we've had massive advances in terms yeah. of the way we're policing this stuff. There will always be a percentage of people who don't want to report to police, and, and the legal thing is not the right something. thing. And what
3: we you do, <coughs> you're not going to be able
6: to get them to do that And that's huge, because um, contested litigation or anything to do with courts is... Um, I think I've been a litigation solicitor for 15 years and I still don't particularly like going to court. Some people do. Um, But the experience of being in court as a victim and as a victim of violence um, is a really unpleasant experience. And to be subjected to cross-examination about your experiences of violence is a really awful experience. So the fact that video evidence can be tendered as evidence-in-chief is extremely powerful. It normally stops, it stops a lot of contested hearings going ahead because the offender can actually see the impact of their actions.
3: We're seeing an increase in early
6: guilty pleas. Yes, early guilty pleas. Um, From from the contested hearings I've seen with victims, they're tremendously unpleasant. Um, And that's why we piggyback people through the court process so we can be there as their ally and protect them from some of the cultural elements of court which aren't particularly pleasant Um, lawyers lawyers are lawyers um, but um, (laughs) they're they're not especially sensitive people all the time so I think going back to what Moo said if we start at the beginning and we emphasise what a respectful and loving and caring relationship is for GLBTIQ people right from the start, right from primary schools um, we won't at the end, dealing with violence, tying up police resources, and going to court. But, you know, if people find themselves in that experience, having that experience, that's what we're here for, to be, I guess, the rainbow umbrella around that process. Yeah. Sorry to
1: interrupt this conversation, but I'm very aware that you might have to leave in five minutes. Just before you go, um, how has the play been received? Rapturous. <laughs> so it is. It is quite a touching issue, and I, I don't want to reveal the play because I know that you're all going to go and see it. Um, how much do I give away? There is obviously. Um, it does. It does approach the issue of domestic violence in an intimate relationship between two men. Um, the way that it's done, though, you don't really kind of find out. I am giving it away, I hope. The part about domestic violence, do you hear people in the
0: audience
1: talking about it? Have you heard feedback on that part of the play (laughs) in general?
2: Look, on the first night, the preview night, one of my best friends was in the audience. And I was speaking to her and her husband afterwards. And we were talking about there's a moment in the play where one of the female characters discloses something that's happened to her. And this this best friend of mine said to me, oh, yeah, but that, I mean, that's, that's pretty banal, really, isn't it? I mean, that sort of happened at that time. You know, that was just something that happened. And me and her husband looked at her and went, did it? And she said, oh, yeah, I mean, that happened to me. I, I've never told anyone about it before. And it was just this, I mean, I've got to say, it was, it was incredibly moving for me because I realised, I, you know, what I've known for a long time, which is that you don't need to go to Broome to." find these stories, sometimes they're actually, it's your best friend who's never told you this, and it's because she doesn't think that it's significant enough to have ever mentioned to anyone. And, um, you know, so the, the response to you is that people, what people are doing with the play, it's not about specifically domestic violence, but it's about naming to yourself what that thing is because you know play should be about what we can't say in 5 minutes they should need 90 minutes to, to explore and the main thing that the play i think has been responded to is that people come out going well, when have i done that in my life when have i done that i mean i think coming out as as a homosexual person is part of the process is going oh, that's what it is that's why i'm attracted to that girl and you know it's like it's that, that's oh I must be a lesbian yeah. oh I've heard this word I know this is what this is but that's what I am I mean it's the same thing with 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 domestic violence or or any kind of to go oh, oh I was raped that's what that was um, and people kind of don't name it to themselves and I think that that's what is going to start the next step where people disclose mm-hmm. like it takes a while for people to go that's what happened to me Kai came into the rehearsals um, that we had and said this amazing thing about you know that people fight so hard to get into a gay lesbian relationship or any, any of the rest of our community's um, relationships and, and then once they're in it if this if domestic violence starts to happen it's like oh my god this is the love of my life that I've you know, fought so hard to, to to have, and it can't possibly be domestic violence. You know, so I think also people hide it; they don't disclose it. You know, you, you said that you've been talking with police about um, going back through reports that to see whether that is actually domestic violence. Like people reported it as something else. You know, like the allergic to the cat or something. You no, know, it's <laughs> incredible what people do. I'm sure you can talk about. It.
6: Yeah.
3: But it's just, and that's true, it's, I think, recognizing acknowledging it, calling it what it really is. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it's yeah, true, because it's that's awesome. it. Because we just, you know, this whole thing with people, and I talk to people regularly with a terrible regularity, you know, where they're like, mm-hmm. that's not that, no. I mean, that's not, that's not yeah. domestic violence. And you, know, you just, yeah. and trying to explain to people that, yeah. Nobody's ice is it any colder than anyone else's. Yeah. What you're experiencing is domestic violence. I can help you with that. And it's a really difficult thing to get through to people because they don't... That's not what's happening
6: to yeah. yeah, and our clients will um, refer friends and family mm-hmm. to the Safe Relationships Project once they've been through that experience because they can identify yes. violence mm-hmm. in, their, in their own yeah. sort of king groups. So... Um, and not reporting well, you know. As a gay man and a black fella, I've dealt with police, <laughs> it is, um, and it has changed culturally, yes. Pace, but still, a police station is designed to be intimidating, like a
3: courthouse. Like a courthouse. No, it's not, so, they're not yeah. woman friendly. No,
6: ourselves. exactly. So being escorted through <coughs> by someone like Katie is incredibly important, like, yeah, for victims.
1: Thank you very much, Lana. Thank I must say so.
6: that.
2: Issues on the stage. You think know, because Mardi Gras is full of plays, but they're all you know, they're all Americans in English. They come to it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that's a
1: perfect time to bring really Brad back into the conversation. What Alana was talking about then was, and everybody else, about how hard it is to identify and to talk about it as well. If you feel
4: comfortable, do you mind talking about what you went through during that relationship? I'll start at the end. Actually, I identified that I'd experienced domestic violence by doing a Dolly quiz. I (laughs) worked. I worked in a (laughs) newsagent. I
2: found out I was getting. (laughs)
4: Said, has your partner ever done these 10 things? And I read it and thought, Like he did. And it was actually after the relationship had finished. So it wasn't even when the relationship was happening that I realized, it was actually afterwards. Um, and there were things like, does he control your finances? You're scared to talk about money. Have, uh, does he isolate you from your friends, fight with your families, all, all the classic things. Um, and it seriously was a revelation. So, um, uh, so, it, so that, that was kind of the end. that's when I realised. And it actually hadn't finished by that stage because he, he he continued on with kind of on going stalking afterwards. So for years afterwards, so yeah, um, when I first started working at Acon, he bought a shop underneath my office yeah, to to, to set up. So I didn't even realise that until the very end what that was actually about. Um, so I met him on Christmas Eve, like, way back in 1984, um, And I was quite young, I was 16, and he was older, he was 30, 31 or something at the time. And for the first months it was just amazing, like, it was the best thing ever. Um, and, you know, uh, it was mentioned before, you know, it takes a long time to get into a relationship, although 16 doesn't sound very long, but I've been wanting it for a very long time. Um, and uh, I got into that, and it felt really good for the first six months or nine months, and then he started getting jealous. And if I got home from, still at school, if I got home from school late, he'd yell at me. And if I spoke on the phone for too long, he'd yell at me. And da da da. And it got to the point where I was actually a bit uncomfortable with the relationship within about a year, or five. Mm-hmm. And um, and I didn't actually want to admit that to anybody, particularly my parents, because I just came out to my parents. They said I love this guy, which was the core reason why I came out to. Me. And then to say it was not a good relationship, it a, you know, I didn't want to have to admit that. Now, anyway, we moved in together at about the year point, and from about halfway through that year, I really wanted to get out. But it was an effect. He was effective, as an abuser He was effective. He wasn't physically violent at that, at that stage, but it was psychological violence. Like every, he called me fat all the time. and I still carried that. If I hadn't done my homework, or the cleaning by the time we got home. He would have like mm. serious meltdowns and smash things and all sorts of stuff. At my mum's wedding, he was, a, he was a chef, he catered the wedding and he fought with all my like, stand-up fight with all my cousins, so I stopped seeing them. And it got to the end of the relationship and I literally had two friends left in the world who I saw not actually, frequently. I mean, one of them's actually been to death. And uh, like I said, I read the dolly and I thought oh my god, that's kind of what's happened and worked back. Seriously, it was kind of what happened. The, the, the final thing, um, the, our very first date was Midnight Mass. It was uh, yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. No, It was Midnight Mass. Um, and, uh, and the very last incident was also Midnight Mass five years later. Um, we were, he engineered it, so we were walking past the church on Oxford Street at Midnight to go to Midnight Mass. I said I didn't want to go to church because, you know, church, York, church. <laughs> um, and he had a complete meltdown and he hit me hit that night so, um, and it was that, that minute that I realised I had to go but it took four months for me to, to mm-hmm. build up the courage to actually um,
1: you said that it wasn't violent, but physically violent at first, <clears throat> do you think that we're distracted by the black eyes and the bruises and perhaps we, that masks all of the other types of violence? Then, I that okay. we know that it's not just physical, but does everybody else know? This? I think we have
3: been, um, and I think that it's actually just starting to come to the fore now that the the insidious nature of psychological violence, of financial control of isolation from friends and family and how how that actually makes up the bulk of what constitutes domestic violence, and because we've, we haven't seen it, or called it all that people that's that, that's that it's
5: not healing She's not hurting. And, and a lot of people will say, um, actually, the, the physical bruises and the you know, um, even I remember speaking to a gay man who was stabbed in the leg by his um, partner when he was trying to leave, and he said that stuff was nothing in comparison with the psychological yeah. stuff. The psychological <laughs> it's stuff that so. you know you heal from, you know, um, most physical injuries, but it's the, um, the stuff where you are doubting yourself and you're doubting your ability yeah. to make decisions or have. You know, normal, mm-hmm. rational conversations. Um, and your money's being controlled. Um, I remember speaking to a guy who was living out in um really, really regional Australia, and the um I was doing your job at the time, Kai. And they the hospital rang me randomly, and they said, "Look, this guy is um he's living with his carer. Um, the guy collects all his money every fortnight. He's um he's allowed to roll three cigarettes in the morning, and that's his ration for the day. So it's it's weird. The thi- you know, the control things can be." The simplest little things, but it's about that power of control, and that's where the similarity is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all all domestic violence relationships are about the use of power of control, and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your sexuality or gender is. Yeah.
4: There's 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 no abusive relationship that doesn't have emotional control. There's significant numbers that don't have physical violence, yep. yeah. but left long enough, I reckon mm-hmm. most of them yeah. in that direction. Yeah. Not all, but no, I would
3: have to agree with you there. I think because then that's that. The abusive partner and then desensitizes so much to what they're doing and dehumanizes the person they're with so much that eventually physical violence is the natural aggression. Because yeah. they have no respect for that person and then they're like, oh,
6: nothing to do. And a healthy relationship is um, based on your own experiences, but as GLBTI people, we grow up with little isolated pods without references to adult relationships that are functional and loving and gentle and so we don't have that reference point necessarily and a lot of our clients uh, draw the line at different points in terms of control and violence and conflict and I think healthy relationships have an element of conflict but that overbearing psychological control and abuse of power is accepted by a lot of victims for a long time like you are saying and once you've established your gay and you've got that relationship. You don't want to diminish it or disparage it, particularly into family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which is, I think,
5: one of the reasons why we find it really difficult to talk about it in our communities, because, yeah. um, you know, there's I think there's perception. an awful lot of uh, excusing or yeah. um, bad bystander kind of things where you look at you look at a friend's relationship and you go, it's kind of dodgy. You know, like not necessarily physical violence, but you look at something going on and you're like. Yeah. you know I mean we're not good at that stuff Australians are not good at like speak intervening or yeah. speaking out or saying no. uh, this makes me feel really uncomfortable are you okay and I think if we can get better at that stuff yeah. Um, yeah. we will actually grow a culture of unacceptability around those sorts of things that go on all the time mm. yeah.
3: I think as well uh, you know for so long the mainstream society we, we've had we've wanted to show our relationships in the best lights we possibly could because they already don't think Relationships are valid, enough. and so if we also show that there's domestic violence, bad things happen. we're showing them that our relationships aren't perfect is another thing that they can diminish our relationships for. And uh, I think that's part of, you know, significant reason why it's taken us so long to approach. It was. Bullying. It was one of
4: the biggest issues when we started the first campaigns as well. well. So the the first statewide campaign on domestic violence with there's no cry in domestic violence and the tagline of that is most gay listeners relationships are based on love and respect and we worked really hard to make sure that, that was the top line because message. otherwise yeah. it undermines what we've been fighting for. yeah and that was ten years
1: ago did you say that was yes. yeah, ten yeah. years time yeah a little bit more and a little bit more like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we're a bit young not me I'm not It's <laughs> kind of going backwards point poignant now to talk about considering with the safe schools everything that's going on and the fact that again we're under attack, again I guess people are not wanting to come out either about their gender sexuality or especially about the abuse that's happening to me so this is a protective immunity element Um, so you, you see people coming to you, first of all going back a couple of steps if the physical violence isn't there or isn't there yet as far as the
6: law's concerned, do that case? Is there... Like, yeah, yeah. No, but no, so. abs- absolutely. An assault is the apprehension of that imminent sort of attack that's coming. It's yeah. not the actual, the battery itself or the being hit. It's being in that state of fear. And the test for a police officer now, because you can report directly to police, you don't need to make an application in court, the test for every police officer is, are you fearful for your safety or for your life? And that focuses people on the circumstances they're in because that's quite a high threshold to meet ordinarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, the psychological control, the monitoring uh, your partner's phone and emails, controlling finances, controlling the social group that they see, family, and all of those elements are forms of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And magistrates are very aware of that in their practice notes and directions that violence takes uh, the psychological form more often than not, and the assault is the (coughs) end result. And I really have to say, because of the video footage that police now tender in court, what the police see every day, there are 26 local courts running domestic violence matters every week, and the lists are overflowing. But what you see is DVLOs, domestic violence liaison officers, is incredibly confronting because you're there at the moment off the track, witnessing those really awful physical assaults. So um, it's a really tough heat, Kate. Um, to think. and I think it's
3: really helped, The day that the domestic violence evidence and chief program that we now run with the videoing and victims, and, and not just the victims, the damage to the, to the premises. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. but how the, you know the place has been turned over. Person's demeanour at the time that they are reporting this incident has been invaluable to us yes. because not only does it take pressure off the victims, because you know um, we take pressure off the victims by being legislated to you know, we have to take action in these matters and they are not the person um, responsible for taking action against the offender or the alleged offender. So we take the pressure off there. It allows that victim to go. I don't have any choice in this. The police are taking this action, but also they have made their report when they're at their most vulnerable. It's been videotaped. That can be tendered in court, and so there's um, the the opportunity for the courts to see what it's like at the time, not how someone is six
6: months later or six exactly. weeks later.
3: But also for the alleged offender
6: mm-hmm. to, to have
3: an to have a genuine. In a bit of insight or a vision of what their behaviour is doing to somebody In the heat of the moment when this person is doing whatever it is that constitutes a domestic violence offense they're not thinking, you know, they're, they're, they're enraged or whatever is going on, they might be affected by alcohol or drugs, they, they might just, it might just be their anger taking them over. To be able to sit back and look at these videos and see the effect that they're having on, um, on their victims, I think can only be Quite yeah, frankly, because I think that that will have, we'll start to see some long term effects of this. Yes. And I, and they are also given an audio copy of that DVEC interview before they leave custody. The, so, they don't get the actual video, but an audio. So, that, it's right there in their hands. Yeah. And I, I and it we're leads not, to obviously, really. it's a very fresh yeah. program yeah. and we haven't done a lot of um, investigation into what we're getting at the moment because we're.
6: Absolutely. No,
3: yeah. You know, I think it's—I mean, I think it's
5: really interesting, Kate. And this is something I've thought about a lot over the last kind of twelve to eighteen months. You know, we've had such a focus on domestic violence yeah, in the media. Yeah. We've had Rosie Batty, bless her. Yeah. Glad that she's having some downtime now, because it gives all of us a bit of a downtime too. <laughs> but we've got this incredible focus and a whole new language around things like, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, and abusive relationships. But I think it's also really important to recognise that sitting in this audience today, we probably have survivors of domestic violence and potentially perpetrators of domestic violence as well. Um, Like, we live in a society where we're not taught about healthy relationships. Like, it's badly taught in schools. It's, you know, it's a difficult thing that, you know, families don't don't necessarily mirror that stuff, that kind of behaviour. Like, we've probably all been in relationships where we've kind of looked back on it afterwards and gone, you know... Was I? Was I? Did I stack over my line there? And I think it's too easy to say, you know, we have this this group of people who are victims and they're over here and that's, you know, one in three and and those sort of stats. and then, you know, there's these kind of evil people over here who are perpetrators of violence. And uh, yes, some of them are. Some of them are uh, psychopathic, you know, crazy, crazy people that should be locked up. But very few are. Actually, the, the big bulk of people who are perpetrators... Probably don't have the right tools and the right places to go and get help and support, and the right mm-hmm. um, understanding of their behaviour. And I think this is where some of this stuff will kick mm-hmm. in because we need to have more sophisticated conversations about this stuff, yeah. rather than just saying, you know, all perpetrators of violence are evil yeah. over there. Um, and look, isn't she an evil woman because she, you know, she bashed up her girlfriend? It's actually, well, where? How are we going to start having a conversation about what, where that comes from, <coughs> and, and trauma, we, and you know? Um, um, and I think we're starting to have some of those conversations in Aboriginal communities because I think communities are, yeah. this is where this stuff has to happen, you know. I mean, police is one part of the response, services are another part of the response, schools and education are another part, but unless we start talking about this stuff as a community and go, actually we've got to check our own behaviour and our attitudes, yeah. think about how we are and how we conduct <laughs> ourselves in relationships, and what the difference, is. the difference is between healthy conflict and abuse it's and and control, mm-hmm like we're still going to be having these same kind of
3: conversations for 20 years time. That's why I think it's good to get these pictures, you know, to have these pictures, to have these records of what's happened, because I think that they can create a conversation around assisting offending behaviour. Yeah,
6: the process is artificial. By the time it hits the court, the witness is usually recovered from that incident, and you can't recreate the circumstances of that event. But the video evidence is so compelling, it does lead to early guilty pleas. Mm. But it also, so in Aboriginal communities, we've got uncles and aunts who are owning the violence in community and setting up their own programs and safe houses for men as well, so men can still be part of the community and interact with family and kin, but be rehabilitated about their anger. I mean, I think if we had a dollar for every time we heard she's a lovely woman or he's a lovely bloke until he has a drink yep. or until he takes the ice or whatever it <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. yes. um, it's just, yeah, it's owning those sorts yeah. of behaviours as a community and it does focus you on your own this sort of anger and intolerance to certain things. It's a really, um, yeah, you have to own it, I guess, as you're saying. Um, just before I pass over to the audience, um, my mom told
1: me that we're running out of time. Right? Mm-hmm. Brad? From your experience and the experience that you've had in the past, what might have actually helped you at the time to either recognise it earlier or to end the cycle of violence? And I, and I ask this for anybody here today that may be experiencing it themselves, as Moose said, as a perpetrator or a victim, or for anybody who might be concerned for their,
4: their family, friends, loved ones as well. Um, <laughs> I think the reason I left when I did, I guess he hit me on that day and once in the four months between I left. So it was kind but I actually think the reason I left is because i had been, that was my second year at uni, the year I left, um, and the first year at uni, he'd convinced me that I was doing teaching, that if I'd went to the gay group, then I would never get a job as a teacher, he convinced me that, because of the yeah. in the education system, um, so I never went, but in the second year, I did, I went along a couple of times, and what I saw were people who had good relationships in that group, mm-hmm. that was, I think, the fundamental thing, and it took me a long time to realise that, but that was actually the trigger. Okay. This is not right. What's happening is not right. So I think it, so. I think seeing good relationships yes. is really important. But I also think it's up, it's understanding the psychological uh, weapons the 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 abuser uses and being able to identify those. Because if I if I'd known that stuff in the year basically what they they take somebody and they break them down then they break them down so they don't have to ability to the... If you can identify that stuff early on, then you don't get broken down and you can go. Yeah. Um,
1: I'd like to pass it out to anybody who has a question for anyone in the panel or for
3: the
7: whole panel. I have a question for... um ...Acon on a service perspective. Um, I can see all the work that's being done to help members of the community not feel ashamed about what people outside of our community think if they see um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence in a gay relationship, and doesn't automatically mean all gay relationships are bad, um, what's done education-wise to make people feel safe within the community about how people can feel about, because we're such a small, tight-knit community that when you do report or you go to think you're going to report, um, this kind of thing, there is a lot of pressure on people from outside, elements inside the community saying, you will ruin that person's life, you know, how can you think that I think that person's really lovely, I don't believe this is happening, and I don't see like a lot of education around that for people, like, what's the focus on that at AQON? You, you guys had those fantastic prices
3: last year like that, the, um, the program around the, you know, yeah. you say something say something, but yeah. domestic violence that sort of thing. I you mean, I think
5: I think stuff is starting to be done mm-hmm. in that area. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing woman called um, Shannon Springs. who's up at Griffith uh, University in Queensland. And she's basically the expert in this country on um, bystander interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started to run uh, groups, like training groups, specifically with LGBT like, communities. She's done some up the things more. And I think she's going to be doing some down here. And it's really mm-hmm. about equipping the community to have an understanding about where violence comes from and mm-hmm. how it... Uh, I mean, you know, like, we have, we have difficulties talking about this stuff because we go, oh, yeah, domestic violence is a man and a woman and a yeah. nice need heterosexual cisgender context and that's, you know, that's not, not our yeah. experience. And, okay, yeah, we've got, you know, beautiful national research saying that domestic violence comes from gender inequality and that's great and it's really important. But how do, how do things like homophobia and transphobia mm. and discrimination and bullying and the things that happen... Uh, to our communities from the outside and inside fit into that. And I mean, um, and you talk to Shannon and she just explains that it fits really nicely into that package of, um, of, of messy attitudes. Um, and, it, and so I think the more that we can start having those conversations in our communities mm-hmm. and recognise that our communities are not these nice, homogenous, you know, neat package things where all queers think the same, mm-hmm. Um, or they all come from the same political perspective or, um, you know, we're all able to have this sort of uh, you know, nice community conversation about how? I mean, I've seen c- communities policing this stuff inside the community yeah. and I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. You know, people putting out things on Facebook or saying, yeah. you know, he's a rapist or, you know, mm-hmm. that stuff is really, really
7: dangerous. But there are ways of pulling the <laughs> mate aside and saying, actually, that he was not okay. Let's yeah. and talk and is there stuff being done helping people, like support, like support to report kind of thing, whereby you're not being judged because you're in an abusive relationship? because like, quite, you know, quite often, what, well, what well, I think what you said before is really important that no one's really evil and no one's really good. There are these really good, nice people who everybody likes, who are perpetrators and victims of violence, and it's hard for people in the community to not judge when someone reports them. I think. Can
1: I just jump in? Because I think your question also targeted ACON to begin with. We've got three panelists here who have all worked for ACON. Yeah. To be really candid, I think the reason why a lot of us may be in those roles for shorter periods of time is because the funding hasn't actually been there to yeah. have sustainable yeah. um, ongoing campaigns and ongoing yeah, education and awareness. Mm-hmm. Again, Rosie Batty, I love her pieces, but she probably got me funding somewhere along the line so that we could actually continue this work. This is the start since I've been in there, which is only since November this is one of the first ways to actually start those discussions. Yeah. And there will be more. And I think these discussions, people like yourself, I think, and I'm going to be really judgmental here, I think half of the people here might actually be part of the LGBTQ community to have them sitting here and actually perhaps say, like questions like yourself, this is the stuff that we want, this is the stuff that we're seeing, this is how it happens. And to be really honest, there probably has been, there, there is a lot of work that needs doing here. And I don't believe we are an LGBTQ community I'm really careful to say communities because I have absolutely nothing in common with a sister girl coming from the Northern Territory. I have absolutely nothing in common with a 50 year old white middle class gay man mm. with HIV and and I think we need to be careful to, to say yes we have a really nice flag but maybe we will fit under them in really different ways. It is a massive task and I'm probably going to contact you later and say, well, can you help yourself? <laughs> yeah. to you you to help the, work, the work has been here for yeah. 10 years. I have yeah. the poster that Brad made on my desk mm. and it is, the work is there. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure because I'm one of few people in the country actually funded to do this work mm. and it does come down to, I would spend seven days a week doing it, but I, I wouldn't do it for free and I don't think you the reward, but it comes down to getting resources, getting money, getting funding, getting attention and having these kind of discussions and I and think how can
7: the community help you pursue that kind of funding and those kind of resources and like what needs to be done? Yeah.
2: Well
1: first of all we'll direct you all to some pamphlets at the bar
3: <laughs> at the
1: um, and they do have those details and, and contact a and contact us are pretty easy to find um, but I also, but I, I also, I would also
5: say a uh, write a letter to the new minister for domestic violence and sexual assault yeah. for hour because she knows this stuff yeah, right. and she's been along to our conferences yeah. and she knows this stuff exists in our communities yeah. and yet she gave a to 12 months funding yeah, right. you know like it's, if we're really going to yeah. take this stuff seriously and, and New South Wales government has been one of the better ones in that they've given chunks of funding for mm-hmm. this over years but um, you know if one in three of our relationships that stuff is going on or mm-hmm. sorry if it's affecting one in three people in our community and way 10% of the population well we've got yeah, you know, we should have some say in this. We should have some um some
1: attention. And I would I would take everyone because every single person in this room knows somebody who's in a relationship. relationship. I would put money on them whether or not. You know, and and
6: it's- bystanders bystanders are reporting violence a little bit yep. more because of this work. But the thing about our communities, mm-hmm. and the same with indigenous communities, is the last thing you want to do is criminalise a member mm-hmm. of the community. And exactly. expose them to police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
7: um, particularly it isn't, yeah. it's, it's like a little it's a, close so, to society. Yeah, and everybody yeah. knows it isn't anonymous. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. it's something yeah. like that happens in our small communities.
6: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why those discreet avenues of reporting are being piggybacked and referred to reporting. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's the it's the guilt and legacy of mm-hmm. um, involving institutions with extreme minorities' lives. Yeah, yeah. institutions to
1: historically haven't won. Yeah. As <laughs> institutions, I mean, we do live in a homophobic, transphobic, mm-hmm. heterosexual society, and when we look at services such as the police, despite the great work they're doing, we still see those uniforms and say, "Well, the history of police industry. has been really complex."
7: Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and a fear of services, fear and do you do see the consequences questioned. for people, even though you know they've done something not great. Yeah. You see the consequences is something I mean, that would be my fault as well. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think also I'd like to just say that ultimately we would like to reach a point where we can intervene and we have services that intervene in offending behaviour before it becomes a criminal offence. So people are learning better behaviours, then they're, they're seeing better relationships, they're identifying in themselves their behaviour is not right and there are services for them to access so they don't end up the POI, the person of interest in, a, in an apprehended violence order and they don't end up with a criminal <coughs> conviction for assault. You had a question.
6: I did have a question. It
3: was
1: just about policing in uh, rural and regional areas. So your team sounds really great, but I just wondered, to know that all across New South Wales, or is it?
3: Our domestic violence intervention training, all the training, every New South Wales police officer receives that training, and parts of it are tailored to. Now, I'm no expert on rural areas, but I also know I know the challenges are different in rural areas than they are in um, you know city areas. Um, the different services work in those areas and work with police. But again, it is it's, difficult in that all communities are different and all communities have different needs. Um, but there isn't any New South Wales police officer that has not received and is not receiving ongoing training with regards to how to deal with domestic violence um, in all communities. We also, um, from a GLBTIQ perspective, again, there's been a liaison officer sexuality and gender diversity team that we're now called. Sexuality <laughs> right. and gender diversity. But it doesn't satisfy as, as glow. So we still gain those <laughs> millionaires and officers. Um, as part of the training that we roll out across the state, we go to um, regional areas when we have the funding and um, we speak to community groups as well as the police officers in those locations in order to skill them up. Part of what we do is gain those millionaires and officers is what we call capacity building. Not everyone can be a glow. not everyone can be a domestic violence liaison officer, or an Aboriginal community liaison officer, or a culturally and linguistically diverse liaison officer. Um, but what those officers do, and they are it's voluntary positions, you do it in, in, in um, addition to your normal duties, um, is that we help to skill up our fellow officers. So where we identify people who are maybe not handling situations in the best way possible, we help them to be better police officers, and where we have the opportunity and the resources, we travel around the state. I say we. I stay in my pretty office in Newcastle mostly, but people like Jackie Braul, um, our senior programs uh, manager from uh, headquarters, That's not um, you know, um, coordinates training across the state, particularly where we identify ongoing issues or problem areas
6: and we targeting our training and the Safe Relationships Project is a statewide referral service yeah. But we work with WDB which is the Women's Domestic Violence Advocacy Service and train them to take the same-sex transgender, and intersex referrals but what I always say to people is the further you get away from a cosmopolitan metropolis the less you can rely on the rule of law mm-hmm. and enforcing the law it's just the way it goes the further northwest you get, yeah. the yeah. worse it So like city policing is very different to country policing. It's a completely
1: different job. Yeah. And that's the same with services too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. City services are very different to rural services
3: if there are any. Yeah, true.
1: Any other questions from the audience? Yeah. Uh, I think we spoke um,
5: before about how we can oversee the flames and there being our group
7: perpetrators.
5: our relationships and our gender and our sexuality or our intersex um normalised for you know kids when they're um in school and I think it needs to go you know way below years 7 and 8 or whatever the curriculum is around sex schools I think it needs to be right from the very beginning and if that is part of a conversation not just about sexuality and gender and about difference but also about things like healthy relationships um in the intimate partner con- context but in the family context um then we will get, we will get that we will get better at this stuff. We will get better at talking about things like homophobic bullying in schools. I mean, we know, we know young queer kids, two most dangerous places for them are school and family. Um, if you want to read about some horrific experiences that young, um, particularly gay or the same sex attracted and um, and trans and gender diverse kids read the writing themselves in studies because that's a every six years it's a piece of research that's been done by we'll call Lynn Hillier. Um, down in Melbourne, with a, a, you know, a big um, cohort of young people, and the violence is getting worse for them. Um, you know, as we get, as as kids get more comfortable talking about their gender and their sexuality, or you know, um, being gender queer or using a different personal pronoun, and start doing that stuff in schools, it results in really horrific experiences of violence. You know, these kids are getting beaten, they're getting, um, you know, sexually assaulted, and they're having. And that's happening in school, and then that's happening in the family as well. And part, you know, it might be parents, it might be siblings. So I think we have a real responsibility to uh, support wherever we can. Those conversations about what is a healthy relationship, where can you know um, young queer kids get help? Where can we get help as adults? Um, you know, there are some great helplines that are now pretty LGBTIQ friendly. Um, so we're getting better at, at training the mainstream services so that they can understand us. Um, and our differences and our similarities. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not being done in a really coordinated way anywhere yet, I would say. Probably Victoria's doing the best work. Yeah. Um, For the they, behavior change.
3: Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I agree.
6: You're doing some nice stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, true. And being referred to, the perpetrators to be referred mm-hmm. to have their you know, behavior <clears throat> changed is really critical mm-hmm. here in New South yeah. Wales. Yeah.
5: Just just this week, um, Daniel Andrews and Victoria announced that they've given, I think it was $140,000 for uh, a behaviour change program. Now, the way that behaviour change works in New South Wales is it's all about men's behaviour change. And gay men and trans men are actually included in the policy stuff around that. So, Mm -hmm. men's behaviour change groups, which are usually delivered in a a group context, um, somewhere between 10 weeks and up to 52 weeks, depending on how much funding they've got and who they're run by. There are very few of them. There are, um, I think, nine programs that have standard across the whole state. Um, only four of them government-funded. Um, they are, are trialling down in Victoria um, an LGBTIQ behaviour change group, and that's the first time that's ever been done, definitely in Australia, possibly anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's just because the government's chucked some money in. Um, that stuff's been worked... With, it's, that work's been done with gay men by decades for probably 10 or 12 years now, and they've just been running this small group once a year. Um, but they're going to expand it to LGBTIQ, which I think is so exciting. There is nowhere for people to go at the moment mm. in our communities here in New South Wales, but mm. hopefully that will be something we'll see next.
6: Yeah, I hope so. We've got referral points to good counsellors and psychologists and therapists, but yeah. none of us form behaviour change groups.
5: Ironically, I would say, <laughs> if uh, if you know somebody who you think is you know, abusive in a relationship, I would tell them to ring the Men's Referral Service, which is a 24-7 service. They're super queer-friendly, um, and they will work with anybody. Um, so they are the experts around um, behaviour change, but I would say they would work with, you know, women, they would work with trans men, trans women, anybody. Um, so if you've got somebody that you know and you're a bit worried about their behaviour or anything, they're ready to have a
1: conversation with someone, I'd say ring, ring them. Uh, on that note, I'll ask the rest of the panellists... If for the audience here, if they know anybody experiencing DfE or somebody that they're concerned about, what would
6: your one piece of advice be? <laughs> Who just said those? I'm going to go right. uh, to I'd
4: go on One piece of advice. To, to talk to them about it. Them that, about that's about it. the most important thing. Uh, in all likelihood, they'll say it's not an issue, yeah. uh, but at least they know that somebody is thinking of them, so when they're prepared to talk, yeah. you know, whenever it is yeah they know there's somebody there start yeah. a
6: conversation start, start a conversation, a conversation. Yeah. absolutely start that conversation even nice if someone's defensive or resistant at first invariably it opens up a stream of consciousness yeah. and i would say call cool it what it is as well yeah. and i would also
1: say downstairs on the bar some brochures <laughs> take some and hand them to them <coughs> I will be down there handing out brochures our wonderful counsellors Sarah and Damistos will be hanging around back here feel free to have a chat um or at least just ask them for our contact details or come and get a brochure referral and you can contact ACON anytime you want. Um, And there's also a list of other referral services because you may not want an LGBTIQ um, service. And also we can (coughs) refer you to non-LGBTIQ services as well. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for talking about a very serious issue. Um, I appreciate all of your input. Thank you panelists, it's been wonderful. I'm sure we could probably talk for hours on this, but we do that's our job. (laughs) Again, thank you for coming, I hope the rest of your Saturday night is maybe talking about something a little bit nicer, <laughs> but thank you for engaging in the really serious discussions because I think this is what's really important. Um, yeah, just one thing,
3: what do you guys do to debrief,
1: you know, like, you're we were just,
3: constantly
5: at we this, about this kind of yeah. barrage of domestic violence coming at you, coming at you all the time, what kind of support network is there for you, how do you...
6: Vicarious trauma comes, <laughs> comes, comes up a lot in no, their work. I'm not sure you go,
1: I'm in this job because this is my break. I worked with clients up until this job recently, so I needed that client break. So I came to talk about it with these guys instead. <laughs> um, so this is my
3: break. So I
0: do mm-hmm. someone else. <laughs> yeah, like I imagine. Do you formally do? We
3: have internal, um, yeah. you know, support services, <clears throat> but um, I have the toxic relationship as well my close friends that I debrief with regularly and, um, I, and I think that that's extraordinarily important um, to be able to do that because yeah there's a lot of darkness you know, oh, things that is. you have to yeah. be confronted with and it's um, and then you know and also it, it will invariably bring up things in your own past in your own life um, and family situations and friends that you've dealt with in the past for example relationships with women it's, Having a strong personal network mm-hmm. is extraordinary. It's invaluable. You couldn't live without it. You couldn't be a healthy individual. You've got a job. <laughs> yeah.
5: So yeah. I think also um, kind of knowing where to get help when you, when you need it. Like one eight hundred respect is the national um, mm-hmm. counselling line for domestic and family um, violence and sexual assault. But they will speak to anybody. They'll speak to you know a family member who's worried. They'll speak to somebody who's dealing with this stuff in their work every day and they're not quite sure how to do the next bit. They will. Talk, talk to and support anybody and um, in my organization we have four divisions so we go and do uh, once every um, three months we go we have to go and speak to somebody yep. and we do uh, a trauma tech, tech, like a trauma checklist um, and they measure our private because we're doing this stuff all day every day so um, I think it's just being aware of it and how it impacts on you and maybe doing some training about it and then going out and doing things that are completely disconnected yeah like, you know walking your dog or
3: Anything. Read yeah. a hawk. Yeah. Eat ice cream. <laughs> Eat ice cream. Eat yeah, yeah. ice cream. I'm going to go the the across the road. <laughs> also oh, oh, no.
1: probably sponsored by a sinner. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Thank
3: you. I hope to see you downstairs. Can I just also say, Kai, Thanks. grab the brochures. The brochures are great. If you've got a friend, though, who might be going through, might be currently going through um, this kind of thing, be careful about yeah. handing them brochures.
1: Yeah. It'll yeah. be
3: a precipitating factor if an abusive partner would we'll have found something.
1: There is one small pamphlet down there that has a really uh, discreet cover. It's got some little puppy looking people. Um, and a wallet easy? size. Oh, no. No.
3: <laughs>
1: There is another one. So it's about wallet size, and so that can also tuck in there as well. And that's got a list of services. Um, and feel free to call any of us anytime. Good luck.
6: And thank you, Colin.